Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. This episode airs on the eve of the 2020 elections with nearly everything hanging in the balance. From our nation's ability to withstand the COVID-19 pandemic to our already constricted democracy's ability to survive the authoritarianism of the Trump administration. On both questions, labor unions have a major role to play. Today, we'll be hearing from a union leader especially qualified to discuss organized labor's efforts to protect and adequately compensate frontline workers, as well as the role of unions in elevating the voice of poor and working class communities in our national politics. We'll be hearing from Sarah Nelson, the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants of the Communication Workers of America. Nelson is also the co-chair of the Economy Task Force formed by Biden and Sanders to create a unity platform for the Democratic Party. Nelson's union quickly mobilized to ensure the passage of the CARES Act, which included broad-based supplemental unemployment payments to workers and a moratorium on foreclosures and evictions. The bill also contained the Aviation Payroll Support Program that, until it ended last month, managed to stave off involuntary furloughs for 2.1 million aviation workers. Interviewing Sarah on today's podcast is Ruth Milkman, consulting editor for New Labor Forum and faculty chair of Labor Studies at the School of Labor and Urban Studies. Ruth is also the author of numerous books, including most recently, Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat. Ruth, it was your idea to hold this conversation with Sarah. I understand you followed her ascendance as one of the most militant and effective leaders of the contemporary U.S. labor movement. How would you describe her importance to the hoped for revitalization of a labor movement that now represents only 10% of all workers and actually in the private sector, only 6%? Well, Sarah is pretty special. Um, she's the genuine article. She became a flight attendant back in 1996. and not long after became active in the union, worked her way up the ranks until she was elected president of the AFA, as you mentioned, in 2014. Um, labor movement folks have had their eye on Sarah for quite a while, but she sort of catapulted into rock star status in early 2019, about a month into the federal government shutdown when she called for a general strike. No one at her level of leadership was making such a 
She's been outspoken on numerous issues in her position, for example, on the issues of sexual harassment and assault. Last spring, she mobilized an extraordinary effort to free a flight attendant, a flight attendant who had DACA status and who was illegally being held in an ICE detention facility. And as many listeners may already know, a lot of labor movement folks want her to become the next AFL-CIO president when Richard Trumka's term ends next year. So she's somebody to watch. And as you're about to hear, she's got a lot to say about the current situation. Terrific. I look forward to hearing this interview. Sarah, in the early days of the pandemic last spring, which, you know, seems like ancient history, but it's really only six or so months ago, many workers, both union workers and non-union workers, took action on their own to challenge the conditions they were facing in the workplace, or in some cases, they're being laid off and unemployed. Those still working, so-called essential workers, demanded health and safety protection so that they could work, pay leave if they became infected, and so on. And some of those issues were addressed, others not so much. In your industry, the airline industry, the issue, the big issue was the potential for layoffs or furloughs as travel collapsed. So tell us a little bit about your union's strategy to address the pandemic at that stage and what you won. We were actually on the front lines of coronavirus from the very beginning, from late December. And one of the first things that we did was interface with our airlines on making sure that not only were we enforcing contractual rights to sick leave and the ability to use that, but also to have the the corporations actually be more more generous in in those sick leave rights and and protecting people and pay protecting people who needed to go onto quarantine and all of those things so that we could be making good safe decisions and not encouraging people to come to work sick. So we we got to work on all of those things right away, but then in March, all of a sudden, there was this cliff drop off when uh, coronavirus hit community spread in the United States, and we've seen crisis before. And so we knew uh, what was going to happen if the airline industry was suddenly in trouble, not able to have passenger demand, and that would be put on labor's backs if we didn't get busy fast. And so we put together a plan. When when demand dropped down to just 3% of what it had been the year before, the safety issues actually all of a sudden for a little while there were not such a huge issue because our planes were empty and we were not really interfacing with people. But what we got to work on, on March 13th, we got to Chairman DeFazio of the uh, Transportation Infrastructure Committee in the House, a plan that is the first people's bailout ever. And so what, what it did was it made sure that any money that would go to the airlines was a jobs and infrastructure plan only, a workers first program. So it could only go to be paying a worker's pay and benefits, keeping us in our jobs, connected to our healthcare, and that they would also have to take a cap on executive compensation well after that funding is expired, a ban on stock buybacks and dividends. We actually worked to try to get some other things in this package, like union neutrality in organizing. The biggest thing they fought against, by the way, because they don't want to have sustained ability for workers to stand up for themselves. But what was great about going to Chairman DeFazio, who's really been a champion for workers his entire career in Congress, um, several decades now, was that he said to the airlines, I'm not going to work with you unless you work with labor first. And so he said, call Sarah Nelson. And I said, listen, the people don't like you. This is not going to work if you think you're going to go to Congress and just get money and you're going to decide how to use it. 
We are going to have to make this a workers first package. And we use that leverage right then to get them to agree to something that no other industry agreed to. And then we walked hand in hand with our industry. As I said, we tried to work on some additional things like the union neutrality, uh, seats on the boards, things like that. But the trunk of what we put forward in a proposal to make this a workers first package and not a corporate bailout is what we ultimately got in the CARES Act. It's the most transparent. It has kept people in their jobs, kept people connected to their healthcare during a pandemic. And we have been working to extend that because that expired on September 30th. And now there's no prohibition on furloughs. We're we're still right in the middle of this crisis. As you said, the airline industry workers did much better than I can't think of any other case that's comparable. But there are really three groups, it seems to me. There's you, which are in the special categories you just explained. There are other unionized workers who also, you know, tried to do some of the same things with mixed success. And then there are non-union workers who didn't have union protection at all and were kind of on their own. Could you just comment on how how those three groups fared in the the last few months as the pandemic unfolded? I mean, how, you know, what the variations were and why? Well, first of all, we are 80% organized in the airline industry. That made all the difference here because we actually were able to bring the power of labor and the power of capital to this discussion. The, the, the people um, heading up these mega corporations, we were actually working together on this package. And that's only because of our power in the airline industry. So clearly that made a difference in saving our jobs, having those protections and having this first ever people's bailout workers first package in, in relief, even in the middle of this political climate. So that, that was really important. But then in addition to that, We also forced our airlines to do things that the government would not. So this administration has made wearing masks a political issue rather than a public health issue, has lied to people, not given people the real information about the virus. And we, because we were, were so organized and have such a huge seat at the table on safety and health issues going back decades, we were able to really force our airlines to put policies in place that the government refused to mandate, the government refused to coordinate for the industry. So within seven days' time, we forced them to put mask policies in place, a mask mandate. We forced them to improve cleaning and the air filtration. We made them work with us on uh, service procedures so that we're cutting down on the amount of contact that we have with passengers. And we made them work with us on some waivers so that flight attendants have some space. It's, It's impossible to socially distance on an airplane. But while we are in our jump seats, we made sure that we worked with them so that we didn't have passengers directly within six feet of us. Things like this. So we, we did a lot of work and we were able to do that because we're already there, we're well established. And even in our contracts, we have safety sections in our contracts that require these airlines to work with us on safety issues. So that was really important and it was transparent. It's reported on the evening news. Everybody knows what's going on and we really have... A, a partnership there. I mean, it creates a, a partnership. Um, in, in other areas where workers did not have as much of a voice, what happened in some cases was with the relief bill, they would put forward a set of labor issues that they wanted included in the relief bill, as opposed to presenting the trunk of the relief bill and the, and the basis for what it is. So it was a list of things to you know try to improve the relief bill and have a worker section of the relief bill almost off to the side. 
And then the workers who have no representation at all, some of them we've seen um, at McDonald's, at Amazon, they've taken action on their own and made a difference in those individual acts, many times withholding their labor, and made a difference on a case-by-case basis, but there's nothing sustaining there. And it's very difficult to tell those stories there because the companies can retaliate, fire people, do all of those things. So that keeps workers' voices silent. And of course, we saw some of the worst of that in the um, meatpacking industries. And so without a union, your safety and health is uh, really about the bottom line and not about anybody's health. You're expendable. You can be called an essential worker being given a, a big title that you're supposed to like pay your bills with on that. But there's no, there's no return and there's no real reality of that respect in the workplace, respect for your life, respect for your work, either with those safety protections or those protections uh, for your job. From a labor perspective, what were the limitations of the emergency legislation that was passed in the spring, and and what do you see as the priorities for this next round, if there is one? Well, there will be one someday, I suppose, but possibly before the election. Well, there there has to be one before the election, because as we know, and this is no surprise, there's reporting in the Washington Post today, but no one should be surprised by this. Republicans are planning to switch to austerity after the election and refuse to do anything. So now is the time to get relief in place. We need to get as much relief locked in as possible. We also need, there are people out there struggling. There are eight, there's a New York Times story today saying 8 million people have fallen into poverty during the time of uh, coronavirus. So we, <laughs> we got to work to get this done right now. And the political pundits would say nothing's going to happen. What I would say is that uh, we have moved mountains on keeping this story in the press, even with everything else that is going on. It is very much the, the top item in the press last night. Shepard Smith did an hour-long documentary on just the airline industry alone and the ripple effect there. So the the cab drivers who uh, go to the airport and how that has affected them, the the, um, parking attendants and all the communities around aviation. And so there is this ripple effect when you don't prop up these jobs, more and more people get hurt. The $600 checks, those were those checks were propping up another 5 million jobs because people were spending back into the economy. So if we don't do relief right now, we are going to be in a position in February. That's a long time away. By the way, a lot of people are going to die, not only from coronavirus, but from poverty. And let's just be really clear about that. So we are, this is, this is about people's lives uh, between now and then. And in February, depending upon it, what this, uh, what the outcome of this election is, let's just say that Biden wins the election and is able to take office, and we have a new Congress that is all Democrats, or maybe not. They are going to have to try to do this without the Republicans, and that is going to be very hard, and it's going to be a much bigger package, and there is going to be all this pressure not to do as much as is needed to be done. So we need people right now to get the relief that they can. What we have done with our packages, we've actually gotten incredible bipartisan support for continuing our payroll support program to keep airline workers in our jobs. 
And it just, we, we can't seem to get it into a final bill. But we're fighting, we're fighting for ourselves. Half my union is on furlough right now, involuntary furlough, not getting a paycheck and disconnected from their health care in the middle of this pandemic after serving as essential workers on the front lines. And we need to get them restored to their jobs. But we also want to make sure that we are not adding to the problem. What, what we said from the very beginning is that when you face a crisis, you need to make sure that you have as many people strong and able to take care of themselves as possible so that we can focus on the sick and vulnerable and target our support there. And if there's fewer of us who are able to take care of ourselves, it's much harder to do. So we, we've got to try to encourage these parties to lock this in. And no relief is just not an option. We are continuing to protest at congressional offices across the country. There's protests going on today uh, with flight attendants, and we're going to keep pushing. And I encourage people to watch the uh, CNBC Shepard Smith documentary from last night because it really does a good job of showing how we are all connected in work and how we've got to do everything we can to keep as I said, as many people strong as possible so that we're able to help those who um, are really in need. You participated in a bunch of discussions about the merits of labor putting energy into political efforts, getting Democrats elected and stuff like that on the one hand and organizing on the other. Now, they're not mutually exclusive in my view anyway, but could you just comment on how you see the what you think is the right balance between those two activities and, and priorities for organized labor? Organizing has to be the top priority because elections come and go. And even when we elect people who are who, who maybe are grounded in the values of the labor movement, we have to back up their ability to get anything done in the Congress or in whatever position they are holding because the, the power is really from the electorate or from the people. And where else can we really engage people and flex that muscle but in our unions? The other reason it's so important to be organizing all the time, and, and I mean internal organizing and external organizing, is that the issues that we face right now seem to be stuck in a quagmire of polarization. And the one place where we do not have a self-selecting process is in our jobs. The boss decides who to hire. So it is a wide range of people with a wide range of beliefs. And when you have to take a strike vote, you have to get people to a place of understanding what's at stake, the urgency of it, and what they're willing to do to fight for it. And those common things, you can bring people together who otherwise think of themselves as very different on a political spectrum or on a uh, past experience or cultural spectrum. And so our, our union halls, metaphorical or not, are where we need to have these tough dis discussions and bring people together. Industries really vary in terms of who is hired and in terms of race, gender, and so on. And in, in regard to gender, first of all, um, it's often struck me that the labor movement in some ways is segmented into, just like the workforce is, into um, female-dominated and male-dominated segments. So for example, mm -hmm. teachers are pretty overwhelmingly women, as are flight attendants, as are nurses, not 100%, but largely. The building yeah. trades, on the other hand, another still fairly unionized, not 80%, but in some cities, highly unionized sector is men, uh, as our firefighters, for example. 
What do you see as the best, I mean, in your industry, by bringing all those unions together in airlines, you've kind of bridged that gap, I think, pretty successfully. But what would it take to do that in the larger labor movement? And, you know, well, which is still led, despite what I just said, is still led overwhelmingly by men, white men, actually. Um, That's begun to change. It's better than it was half a century ago, but we got a long way to go. So could you just comment on that, on those issues of, you know, gender within the labor movement and what what the agenda should be there? Yeah. So one of the first things that we have to do is take take on racial and gender justice. We abs- that has to be at the forefront of our priorities as a labor movement. I I like to tell this story about when the Me Too movement broke. And my union uh, had was formed in 1945 to deal with discriminatory issues. Uh, we fought to make sure that you didn't have to quit when you were 30, that you could be that you could be black, that you could uh, be brown, that you could be a man in my job, that you didn't have to step on a weight scale. We had to do that until 1993. <clears throat> we had fought through a ton of discriminatory practices and even changed our job title to try to break through that sexism. Um, but the industry had never denounced it. We had always fought for ourselves and taken care of ourselves. And when the Me Too movement broke, it was suddenly this aha moment that we could actually demand of our airlines that they denounce that sexist past and actually hold us up as safety professionals. And if if they were doing that and, and calling for zero tolerance of sexual harassment and assault in our workplace, the 62% of the flight attendants who responded to the survey who said that, yes, they experience physical and verbal sexual harassment on the plane would be in a safer environment and also be in a better place to make sure that there is a response when a passenger has experienced a sexual assault on the plane. And previously, there were only 7% of those reported, and only half of those would say, I would encourage people to actually report the next time because nothing was ever done. So we we were calling on our airline management to uh, speak up on this. And we were asking for stories through this polling and through just anecdotal stories, and we were not hearing from any men. And so I started to ask some of my male colleagues who I have seen be targets of sexual harassment on the job and objectification. And I said, why aren't you speaking up? And they said, to to a T, they said, Sarah, we work in a workforce that is 80% women. And so this is a moment for women's equality. And if we want to have bargaining power, we have to step back and make sure that this is a moment where women gain power at work and gain recognition at work. And that's the only way we're going to move forward. So that's the perspective of men in a largely women's dominated profession. And I think you can apply that anywhere else. You know, I'm wearing the Unite Here t-shirt, one job should be enough. And the, what Unite Here has done with this program is to say that all work has dignity. Every single job that you do. I had a CEO one time say to me, Sarah, you can only pay so much to put lettuce on a plate. No, anyone who comes to work and is contributing to this economy is, deserves to have just one job to take care of their family, deserves to have respect at work. And if we don't start to tackle the ideas, the, the, the boss's tools, sexism and racism in the work to divide us, then we are never going to move forward as a labor movement. We're never going to garner our power. 
hopefully we do have a Biden administration in 2021. I know we can't count on that, but let's be optimistic for a moment and think about what that would look like. And if that were to occur, what do you see as the priorities that the labor movement should be promoting to that administration? So we need to encourage the Biden administration to not be constrained by the deficit hawks who really use the deficit as a means to divide people and confuse people. Because all that you have to look out for is uh, making sure that there is not an inflation that is out of control. But otherwise, the federal government can invest in the people and fill the real deficit holes of good jobs, of housing, of education, of health care. And so I can pivot from that and say, this is what we have to be pushing Biden on. He needs to follow through with an infrastructure plan that is a green infrastructure plan that can create millions of good jobs and be a part of creating millions of units of housing so that we make sure that we do not have homeless in the richest country in the earth. And so that we are also investing in education and giving everyone a chance to get that education. And I think the the glaring issue here, of course, in the middle of this pandemic is healthcare. So connecting healthcare to people's jobs is cruel and it doesn't work. And as a union organizer and negotiator, I know that every single time that we go to the bargaining table, we have to fight like hell to hang on to the health care that we negotiated decades ago. It doesn't, it doesn't get any better because the costs go up and up. In a for-profit system, uh, you are putting, making lives a commodity. And that's just not right. We need to address this as healthcare as a human right. And I think there's a real opportunity in the midst of this pandemic and this crisis for us to push harder on that. We know where Biden has stood in wanting to protect and expand the ACA and try to get more people healthcare. That's going in the better direction than Trump is going and trying to tear it all down, of course. But it's not really right until we secure health care is right. We, we've, got to, we've got to really push the Biden administration on this issue and, and continue to push forward to make sure that we can secure health care as a human right. So thank you very much for making the time to be with us today, Sarah. And thank you, Riz, so much. Appreciate it. And, and one last thing. Using power builds power. Don't back down. Don't be afraid to use that power because power does not constrict, it expands. And that's, that's what we're gonna do going forward. Thanks everyone. Okay, thank you. Very important and exciting conversation that we'll, we'll be sure to continue on this show and so glad to have you here to be able to do that. Engagement in issues like this forms the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast, and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.